this morning, pressing all the buttons and making sure that the lights stay on and that we are flying in a straight line. Our co-laborer in the ministry is Mpo Mpo. It's great to have you with us. Morning, brother. I can't see you, but I know you're there because things are working. <laughs> so thanks very much for that. We're going to be joined shortly by Michael Swain. Uh, we are going to be um, engaging with him. Um, but let me at this stage just bring in Tepo uh, so that he can begin us talking uh, where we left off last week. Last week I spoke about my three favorite books uh, that I have on my shelf that are my go-to books over and over again. And uh, even as we begin the discussions, Tips, I'd be really interested if you had to just choose three books, three books that have influenced you or three books that are your go-to books, three books that are your most recommendable books on your bookshelf, uh, what three books would you choose? Mm. <laughs> it's a tough one. <laughs> okay, so firstly, I would choose The City of God by, it's sitting right in the corner, by St. Augustine. Um, that's one. And then secondly, I would say uh, Basic Theology, which is a systematic theology as well, uh, by Charles Ryrie, because it's easy to read and understand. And then lastly, <laughs> I would say um, Knowing God by J.I. Becker. Those hmm. would be my three. Those are like, those are like heavyweight books, brother. <laughs> City of God, um, Ryrie's Basic theo uh, Theology and Knowing God by J.R. Packer. We, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about those books when you get back. I, I am... I'm interested in your choices, I really am, and we're going to engage around some of your eschatology and ecclesiology oh. um, because you chose Rari, but that's okay, I'm not judging you, I, I like Rari yeah. too. <laughs> here's the thing, here's the thing, liking yeah. somebody's book and liking his, um, whatever he's written, I mean, doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that he's written. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay, well, we, we, we'll, we'll have that conversation in a while. In the meantime, I'm joined by my friend, Michael Swain. He is the executive director uh, for 4SA. Uh, Michael has had a very interesting life and very varied um, experiences. He has studied law abroad. Uh, he has been successful in business. He was a co-founder of the His People, Every Nation uh, church movement in South Africa. And... Um, uh, Michael heads up an organization called uh, 4SA. 4SA is a legal advocacy organization. It works to permit, uh, to permit. I just made a word up. That doesn't mean anything. It works to protect and promote the constitutional right of religious freedom in South Africa. And he has been engaging together with his team uh, of advocates that work for 4SA. He's been engaging with us for the last number of months on uh, Table Talk uh, each Friday, basically helping us understand where we are in terms of the engagement, the conversation between the church and the state. Michael, it is good to have you on with us this morning. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Mark. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, brother, normally I'd 
open up and a little bit of small talk and we would shoot the breeze about the temperature in Cape Town. But actually, there's really pressing stuff that's on the go at the moment. And as a pastor, I, I, I'm looking forward to you uh, engaging on just some of the stuff that has happened this week, particularly around changes to legislation and regulations of lockdown. Um, you sent me through a, a whole host of things. I've also seen some stuff that Nadine has put on in terms of video correspondence. But do you want to just take us through the changes to the way that gatherings can happen, uh, even for this weekend, this Sunday coming? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Yep. So as you know, last time we spoke, we were in something of a world of confusion with conflicting regulations and a lack of clarity. And the president gave the clarity in as much as, and thankfully, after a month-long ban, religious gatherings, including home groups, are now permitted again. But they do come with conditions. And of course, the one condition is that it is not more than 50 people allowed indoors, 100 people outdoors. And if you have a smaller venue that can accommodate uh, that amount, say 50 people with a 1.5 meter social distancing, then you can only have 50% of the capacity of your venue. And what's interesting is that for the first time, government have actually raised the bar on this. Um, they have issued now a certificate which the venue must display, uh, which should be completed by the owner or the operator, uh, to show exactly uh, what the maximum capacity of people the facility can hold. And if you don't, then it's an offence not to do so. So in other words, it's a criminal offence if you don't put the certificate up. And secondly, and perhaps... Well, well Ma Michael, can I, just, can I just ask a question there? Yes. And I mean, look, these regulations are relatively new. You may or may not know the answer, um, but I would like to ask it. You know, for the last number of months, um, we've had a health and safety officer at our church. Um, we've got a very comprehensive, I mean, I'm talking like 30, 40 page document in terms of health and safety under lockdown, where we detail every single little myopic myota of, of what's going on um, and how we might respond to, to issues that might arise. But one of the things that we have been doing is we have printed out, in fact, Tepo did it, um, we have printed out and stuck on the doors of our church um, the, the standard occupancies. So, you know, what is the occupancies when, when there's no social distancing and what is the occupancies when there is social distancing? Is that what they mean by a certificate, like a printed notice of how many people can fit in the room? Or is there an actual Department of Health or Department of Traditional Affairs or wherever we must get it on um, certificate that we need to download and print out? Do we need to register something somewhere? How does this, do I need to go to my local police station and get an affidavit? How does this work <laughs> when you say that we have to, 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 to make this uh, information uh, available? They were good questions. The um, department um, and also I, I saw the, lo the local provincial health authorities um, had put out a certificate and they have a kind of a pro forma. In fact, we sent that around quite broadly, so I can certainly send you a copy of it. But essentially, it, it repeats what you've already done. Um, it gives the maximum occupancy of the venue as if it were just, you know, your typical you know, non-COVID Sunday. And then it asks you to put in the number for 50%. Um, so you've done 
the right thing even without uh, being compelled to do so, which of course you now are. Uh, if you don't, it's now a, a, a criminal offence. But I think perhaps more significantly is that if you then choose to attend uh, a service where you now obviously under these lockdown regulations have your numbers restricted, if you exceed that number, and you are even one of the people who's exceeded that number. So let's say there are 51 people in your venue when the police arrive and they see that you're only uh, maximally allowed a, a 50, then every single one of those people is liable to uh, a criminal conviction and a six-month jail sentence and or a fine. So that is a significant departure, if you like. It's a much more like, you know, club um, mentality than has previously been in play where normally the police would come along and if they did see a, 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 what they would call an illegal gathering they should uh, previously have just asked that gathering to disperse and then you just go your way but now actually everybody at the gathering is potentially um, liable to arrest and to be uh, cr criminalised basically if, if convicted I, I mean it's, it's a it's a relatively troubling um, predicament, but I'm guessing that it's um, that, that that it has been uh, that it's the chosen kind of legal response to a government which has been incapable of really um, taking care of any gatherings, whether that be church gatherings, which largely I hope that the church has been um, compliant and respectful to the governing authorities that are above them. Um, but but my sense is that the state hasn't been able to take care of, of any kind of social gatherings that have been happening, whether it's happening in a nightclub, it should be in a political gathering, a riot, a loot, um, or a church service. And so now, basically, because they, they haven't been able to maintain law and order, um, they, they're trying to put the onus on those that might be attending rather than those that are organizing. I mean, is that fair or is that a little bit unfair to say? Well, I think you said two things that are, are, are both fair and true, but not necessarily um, the outcome that one would like. So, for example, you're absolutely right in as much as that for the vast majority, the religious community has been very law-abiding, have stuck very strictly to regulations, have been extremely responsible. The social distancing and health and safety and sanitation protocols that apply to church gatherings are greater than for any other gathering. So, yes, and, you know, churches are in any event, uh, and church leaders, particularly who are responsible for their congregants' well-being generally, are the most responsible people when it comes to this sort of thing. In fact, many churches, as you probably are aware, have not even opened. Um, so that, that is on the one side. On the other side, yes, you see many other gatherings that have taken place and, and are still taking place of another nature, whether they're political gatherings, you know, we've had court appearances of politicians, we've had funerals of, 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 of the king, for example, uh, clearly no social distancing, no mask wearing, no so, but not a sign of a policeman. Whereas, unfortunately, um, you have other churches, in fact, there's a case uh, this morning of the Unity Fellowship Church that was having a prayer gathering that was broken up by police, rubber bullets were fired, tear gas, people were clubbed, you know, well, horrible violence. Sorry, can we just go back and just repeat that? Because that is, I mean, that is absolutely terrifying. I, I saw, I saw 
hours of footage done in KwaZulu-Natal of people looting shops and the police standing by and doing absolutely nothing. But you're telling me that the police came into a church service and fired rubber bullets and people were harmed um, as that went on. The, 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 I mean, the, there's, something, there's something wrong with the way that, that, that the churches are being dealt with in this country. Well, this was some weeks ago now. But yes, I mean, the, the, I think some, uh, you know, a helicopter, a water cannon, I mean, the whole nine yards were, were, were brought against this church. And they were basically having a prayer meeting. And I mean, and, and people were injured, absolutely. And, and traumatized, as you can imagine. And, and the pastor was arrested. She, she was bundled into the back of a police van um, and, and, and left there for some five hours, she told me. I mean, just the idea of helicopters and water cannons at a prayer gathering and smoke rising up over entire cities and just the 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 the, the way that the the state is just dealing so differently with these two groups of people is it maybe because the church is considered a soft target but a social target so if they camp down on the church they get their message out relatively quick people might stand up and take notice well i, I don't know whether that is the case but it's certainly true of course that the church is a much softer target for example than uh, for, for the police than if they were to go and try and say make arrests at an EFF rally I think that would be true to say but um, you know again th this sort of thing is happening I, I, I know that uh, CRC Pastor Bossos church was visited this Sunday and they were also having you know, prayer meetings they're also assembling huge amounts of emergency relief supplies to take to send through to, to KZN and they had a, a massive operation going there and the police arrived. Um, I know other churches, uh, I, I saw a, a, a video of, of Christ Embassy where the police came in with shotguns and one congregant was literally sort of like headbutted. You can see it on the video. So the, the, the police have not covered themselves with glory. And I'm not saying that one should specifically blame government for that. But I do think that um, the, the, the message does not seem to have filtered through to the police. Um, when it comes to churches and how they should perhaps deal with these types of situations. But unfortunately now that the, the uh, bar has been raised in as much as it is now a criminal offence if you're over 50 people, uh, you know, for all those people in attendance to be, potentially uh, be able to be arrested. Th 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 that is concerning. But obviously we, we hope and pray that common sense will prevail. Well, let's just talk about common sense for, for a moment then. Um, obviously, the changes to the regulations that allow uh, 50 congregants to be indoors, 100 to be outdoors, um, that, that is some relief. But uh, because we are in the middle of a pandemic, because we are sensitive to the realities that we have high infection levels, we have um, very, very high hospitalization uh, levels in our country at the moment, there are still some common uh, sense protocols that still apply under the current reg reg regulations, correct? I mean, we, we still need no, to be wearing masks and uh, maintaining social distance. What about no, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, none of none of the none of the um, protocols have changed, and in fact, as I'm sure you know, in, if any, if anything, um, the most important thing is obviously to be concerned about people's health because this is a serious and severe disease and it has 
uh, had many casualties. I think we all of us know people who succumbed to it. Um, so this is not to minimize it in any way. Uh, the other thing which we've always said, of course, is that you know, just because you can open doesn't mean to say you have to open. And equally, if your venue has opened, if you as a church are open, it does not mean that you as a congregant must attend. You know, it, in other words, within these parameters, you should make your own health choices. But I think you know, another thing which is true is, is that there must be a level playing field. And I think one of the problems that we've seen, of course, is that little of what has been proposed has actually been science-based or data-led when it comes to uh, particularly the restrictions on large-scale venues. I mean, there are, there are churches, as you know, that have maybe 5,000 seater capacity, and yet they're only allowed 50 people. I mean, 5,000 seater. I, I, I pastored a church in Cape Town for, uh, with 5,000 seater venue, and it's literally the size of a football pitch. And you, you know, you can't tell me that 50 people sitting in a space the size of a football pitch with, you know, ceilings that are literally sort of 15 meters high is, is going to be a greater level of infection or as equal level of infection, let's say, as, as, as a venue that will seat a, a maximum of 50 at capacity. Uh, so, you know, you, so, Michael, I, I think for myself, uh, in the past, I've been very concerned for smaller churches, mainly because, like, you know, I kind of consider myself a smaller church. We're we're two hundred on a Sunday, um, but I'm also very, very sensitive to the to the dire straight financial need and for the need for uh, for assembly for for churches that are even smaller than mine and the precarious place that often those kinds of congregations are in. But, but now that 50 can gather and we're going to be having a service on Sunday, we'll, we might very well go to two services next week and, and following. I guess the, my, my heart kind of shifts again. And I do. I think of those larger congregations. Uh, you know, many of my friends are in churches of, uh, that, are, that, are, that are relatively large. Um, and and they clearly don't have relief. None of them are opening this Sunday. They are still struggling, uh, you know, sending out digital in engagements with people. There hasn't been interaction with those churches, um, some of them for like a year and a half now. Um, where to from from here? How does how does 4SA get involved and engage with the government and 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 seek relief for those kinds? of churches and those kinds of gatherings? Well, uh, you know, as you say, that there is no scientific data uh, which justifies any cap, for example. I mean, if you go to 50%, go to 50%. I mean, there's no problem with that. And put in all the social distancing of the safety, sanitation, health protocols, by all means. I mean, government is entitled to do those regulations and to, 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 to take those mm -hmm. decisions. But what we have seen, unfortunately, over really since this began, uh, starting off with the fact that there was no mention of uh, religious workers, religious organizations in the originally published uh, five levels uh, that they released back in, in March last year. Um, there has been, we believe, unfair discrimination against the religious sector. And that is why, and we've seen it again, by the way, just, just recently, when there was a total ban on religious gatherings, but restaurants were allowed to open and health and fitness clubs were allowed to open. And so we are going to court. And the good news is that we now have a court date in the Johannesburg High Court on the 22nd to the 24th of November. Um, there are actually four parties which have been consolidated into one for this case. But we are expecting and sincerely hoping, and please pray, 
that we will now establish a legal precedent, which is very important because once you have a legal precedent, you have a standard that government must then abide by. They cannot then simply do what they've been doing to this point, which is to make fairly arbitrary decisions when it comes to how they treat the religious sector versus other sectors of society, similar sectors. And once that is in place, of course, if government does overstep the boundary, then you can get immediate relief uh, from the courts. You can literally bring an urgent application. Whereas at the moment, without that legal precedent, we are simply tossed to and fro depending upon what happens next. And there's very little that we can do about it otherwise, other than either comply or risk running foul of, of, of the law. Um, and so we are taking, which we do because we are a legal advocacy group, we are only really interested in the law and in our constitutional rights. And we believe that the unfair discrimination that's been experienced by the, the faith community in this country is something which we need to now established legal precedent for because this will not be i think the last wave that's going to come through and this will probably not be the last um you know pandemic or something of a similar nature so we need to get this sorted and please god we get the result that we're hoping for in november in court okay so november in court Ma michael i personally like on my own personal facebook page want to partner with you guys i want to make sure that i'm posting a call to prayer um when this um uh, court case comes up i have no doubt that there's other people that are listening in right now that that are called to action they, they either want to know more about this relationship between the church and the state they want to know more about religious freedom uh, or advocating for uh, the right to express our religious freedom in south africa um, or they want to know more about you guys as an organization. How can they find out that information? Where's the best place to go? Um, yeah, do, uh, do you want to make a pitch for the 4SA website? <laughs> oh, thank you, Mark. Yes. Yeah, look, we do have a, a website, which is forsa.org.za, forsa.org.za. And we also have a Facebook page, Freedom of Religion SA. And we also encourage people to sign up for newsletters. We're actually about to release the newsletter uh, in August. I think it's going out next week. Um, we do normally like a quarterly update newsletter. But everything is topical. And things do change, as we know, from literally one day to the next. So there's unfortunately, I mean, what we're talking about in terms of lockdown regulations and what have you, that is just one of multiple issues that we've been dealing with. And you know some of them, and uh, there are others coming up. Uh, so we will keep updating uh, the people about what's happening in the country. We're actually, I think, uh, a few next week or end of next, the following week, we're up in KZN uh, at a case there where we're a friend of the court. Um, we had another court date for another very important case uh, set for September, so we can maybe talk about that next week. But there's a lot going on, and I think it's so important that people are informed and understand these things and also uh, engage in the democratic process as and when the opportunity arises. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really good always to engage with you. Uh, love the excellence that you as an organization bring uh, to the conversation and how you keep us informed uh, of what is going on. Uh, strength to your arm, brother, and uh, I hope that you enjoy the rest of the day down in Cape Town. <laughs> Cheers for now. Where, where, where I have to tell you, this is funny and beautiful. Oh, you didn't have to go there. You didn't have Just to, to add that in.
Okay, <laughs> oh, that's just a little bit of <laughs> just uh, kind of like uh, rubbing the salt into the wounds. But you can uh, uh, enjoy the the mountain and the ocean down in Cape Town today, my friend. <laughs> Tipple, brother, we are going to continue the engagement of where we left off um, uh, before uh, we spoke about the state of the nation. Uh, yeah. We really kind of picked up the ball. Uh, from what we were talking about last week. Last week, um, I started to engage on my favorite three books. This week, you have dropped your uh, three books uh, off, um, uh, uh, and that wasn't scripted, so you, you might even want to change between uh, between uh, what you said uh, before I chatted to Michael and now. Um, but uh, let's engage a little bit around those books, and then we will start to bring in just some of the questions that folk might have around scripture, around the books that you've mentioned. Um, uh, we can even put put in a pitch for how people can get hold of good literature. Let me quickly tell people how they can engage on Radio Pulpit over this time. Um, you can drop questions, you can drop comments, you can um, drop information that I might have missed that we can bring into the show on WhatsApp or Telegram. The telephone number is 082-657-2729. We really love to hear voice notes. Uh, please uh, send those voice notes in. It's always great to listen to them. Uh, Mpo is able to uh, bring those into the show. On Facebook, uh, you can join us. We are live streaming right now to the radio pulpit. Uh, Radio Console Facebook page and you can drop your comments down in the comments below. I get to see them right here in front of me um, even uh, in Benoni. Uh, I, we've got the studio set up so that we can see that. On Twitter you can drop uh, a tweet to at 657am and we see those as well. We are looking forward to saying hello and I do see some regular listeners have already dropped comments uh, down below. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of feedback after after we chat about uh, Tepo's book choices, questionable book choices. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of feedback uh, regarding a site visit that we did uh, on Saturday to a bookstore in Johannesburg, and I will give it a star rating. <laughs> we will we will judge the bookstore out of five. So stay tuned and hear that. Tips, you mentioned three books, and if I remember the three books, they were Augustine's Confessions, amazing choice. They were Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, interesting choice for you, um, although I think I've probably put it on my top 10 once or twice, you know, alongside other systematics, and let's engage on that a little bit. Uh, and then J.R. Packer's Knowing God, which I kind of quoted I like very extensively in a sermon just a few weeks ago, and um, so I, I approve of your I approve of your selection. But let's just talk through them. Number one, Augustine's Confessions. My friend, most people have not even heard of the book. It was written one thousand. I'm going to go with six hundred years ago um, by a by the last doctor of the church. No, actually, I don't think he was the last doctor of the church. That might have been Thomas Aquinas, and I think he came later. Um, but by a doctor of the church, um, Augustine, certainly one of the greatest minds and most influential thinkers that has 
literally impacted the church even to the present. I still quote him on Facebook <laughs> and I still see quotes yeah. from many people on Facebook. Tell us a little bit about Confessions and why it made the number one slot on your top three. So I think, especially talking about the city of God, <laughs> and immediately people would think, the, um, especially when you, when you say the city of God, you would think about an actual city. But he makes he makes the distinction of um, a man who lives for God in this present world, who 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 has no um, uh, what is this? Who who lets go of all of these earthly things that you can hold on to? And that's that's actually his description of the city of God. And he talks about the 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 government, how man needs government. And this book was actually written to to discount the the what is this the accusation of the of the of the Roman people who were saying that uh, the reason that Rome was sacked is because of um, their religions or they 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 worship to their pagan gods um, uh, was prohibited at that time. But then Augustine counters that and say and, and gives an account and says, look, this is actually he 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 counters that and says, being Christian actually or 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 or, or, or living the Christian way is the best way, <laughs> regardless of what you what you see. Um and, and he actually he actually counters that by by writing this book. And so yeah, the city of God basically speaks of um, how a man, or, or, or I'm, I'm just trying to think. It's like it's it's between it's living in faith, basically, <laughs> and mm -hmm. and and every time I think of it, it's like I think of the book um, Mortifications of Sin, and that's basically letting go of the world's possessions and the like the the carnal things of this world. You know, it's very interesting. My father is an Anglican pastor. He pastors currently, he's just taken uh, the reins, so to speak, of a church down in Port Elizabeth, St. John the Baptist. <laughs> so there's a Baptist connection, but he is an Anglican. Um, and many years ago, I asked him, well, Dad, what, is, what are your favorite books um, through history? And um, when he was giving his top 10 uh, at the top of his pile was the Confessions, uh, uh, St. Augustine's. Uh, and I, I guess as I'm, as I'm hearing it and I'm just thinking of my dad, I'm thinking of you in the, in the room next to me. Yeah, you have a, I'm not going to give my dad's age away, or I guess <laughs> I can. I wouldn't, uh, let me not give my mother's age away. Um, but my dad is, you know, 60 plus, I, I, you know, I actually don't know. I'm, I'm not big with these kinds of things. Let's go with 67. My dad's 67 years old, um, a, a, uh, an Anglican down in the Eastern Cape. And yeah, you have a young, and again, I don't know your age, Tseps, but I'm going to go with 30 years old, a, a Baptist up in Gauteng. And both of you choose the confessions in your kind of top 10 uh, in your first slot or whatever it might be. How did the book hit your heart? If there's somebody who hasn't read the book yet or doesn't know much about the book, how did the book hit your heart and how did it change the way that you live? Um, just in a paragraph or two. Yeah, so 
even even in 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 Augustine's counter um, of the the accusation behind or the accusation regarding um, the backdrop of Rome, he 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 actually talks to the heart of even Christians um, to love God and to love man and to do good to men's end. So so the gospel is here even in that. Like it's not like it's not like he is discounting. Um, their accusation against Christianity and leaving it there, <laughs> but he's actually pressing forward to us, um, reaching out to the neighbor um, and and wanting to see them come into the camp of Christianity. Okay, yeah, oh, great. Well, now let's get to your second choice, um, yep. <laughs> which was Charles Ryrie's basic theology. <laughs> Now, 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 yeah, this is interesting, okay? So in my top 10, I would normally have a general category for systematic theologies, and my favorite systematic theology changes, like month to month. You know, sometimes it's been Gridham, and sometimes, well, it was actually never Erickson. I found, that, yeah. I found him really difficult to read. But, but like a simple read, like T.C. Hammond um, in Understanding Be Men at one stage, I really valued that book because of its comparisons um, between various different strains uh, of mainline churches. You know, at times I, I've really appreciated as I've been going through the Christology uh, of Mayhew and MacArthur's um, uh, big white tomb of a systematic theology, uh, which yeah. uh, our church received multiple copies of uh, through a kind donation from Antioch Bible Church, Tim Cantrell and you know, the guys from Grace Community Church, which we're very grateful for and I've loved that systematic. But I have a soft spot for Ferrari's systematic, both his systematic and he's also got a much smaller book, um, a biblical doctrine book, which is, you know, maybe a hundred or maybe 200 pages that, that I've also really, really appreciated. Now, I've got my own opinion as to why I think it's great. Why don't you tell me why you think it's <laughs> your top three? Okay, this so... Tell so, about your eschatology. <laughs> so so this was um firstly it was it was a textbook um through my seminary years um and so i i got i got like a lot of time to chew in it so yeah it's it's easy it's accessible the language is simple um and and i think i think just just as an entry level so so they are very they're very intense um systematic theology books but just as an entry level, I mm. think I think it's, it's accessible to um, just any layperson who wants to know about these big topics in the Bible. Um, they can just pick up Briary and get to understand what angiology is. <laughs> um, yeah. So so yeah, that's that's basically one of the reasons. Um, also, hey, I, I think I actually just want to absolutely affirm what you've just said. I, I find Briary really, really simple. Really yeah. simple. Um, yeah. You know, you pick it up, you go through the perfections or the attributes of God, and he is clear and easy to understand. Now, now he comes with a couple of modifiers, right? He comes with a couple of uh, of notes. So, like when you yeah. go through Grudem, you know, I, I'm not with him when it comes to his understanding, particularly on prophecy. I thought he was particularly weak uh, on yeah. on the prophetic, ongoing. Um, prophecy uh, that that would be an exception when it comes to Grudem. When it comes to Eric, and maybe a little bit academic, you know, yeah. for, for for my tastes. Um, 
when it comes to MacArthur and Mayhew, I, I haven't noted a, a, a particular exception yet, um, but, but maybe some exceptions are starting to develop in my head as I engage with the content. With yeah. Ryrie, he is a dispensationalist, and he is an older dispensationalist. I think the dispensational conversation, and if you're listening in on this conversation, now we're talking about the nitty-gritty theological positions that Christians hold. There's two general camps within the the, the Christian thought, um, uh, that being covenantalists and the other being dispensationalists. I'm a dispensationalist. Tepo, who on Zoom... <coughs> below me um, is what's called a new covenantalist or at least Whoa. that's what pitched himself <laughs> as in the past maybe I've outed him in public um, but you get covenantalists and dispensationalists um, Rari is a dispensationalist but but he's kind of old school um, yeah. you know I, I come from a more MacArthurine uh, tribe which we would kind of call ourselves leaky dispensationalists we don't talk about economies of dispensation and and some of the things that the that the older guys did they had sometimes like really complicated and and intricate um uh, understandings of old testament dispensations and um uh, uh, kind of uh, I, I do see things as a little bit simpler than that um yeah. but he comes with a he comes with a footnote because in his economies of dispensations, he, he has sometimes um, spoken about different economies in different dispensations in terms of how we engage with God or God engages with us. Um, and this is another, uh, well, this is maybe a greater theologic, another theological uh, footnote to mark on Ryrie. Um, he is free grace as opposed to lordship salvation. I would hold to lordship salvation, which is a, a conversation of when we are saved, uh, um, uh, what does that salvation look like? Does salvation necessitate in good works? In other words, are good works fruit which are always produced uh, out of salvation? Or in actual fact, can a person be once saved, always saved without any fruit? You know, responded, a, 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 and, and Ryrie would take the latter uh, free grace uh, route and uh, you know even in his theology if I remember correctly he only deals with it in two pages I think subsequently to his book being produced and being printed MacArthur started the conversation uh, regarding what salvation looks like um, and uh, and produced a couple of uh, books around salvation and then the lordship conversation started to heat up but Ryrie takes the latter view which is uh, free grace whereas uh, MacArthur would take a lordship salvation tip yeah on, on free grace and lordship salvation free grace so would there be a time period um, that you think we should give the person who's just been converted to Christianity to produce fruit <laughs> yeah well I mean, look, A, I don't actually have a microscope, a spiritual microscope to look into the heart of man. And so, yeah. you know, we've got to be very careful. I don't stand as the judge of any man ever. Yeah. Jesus is a, a perfect judge and I leave judgment to him. 
Um, but when it comes to salvation, I happen to be reading Luke this morning, right? And Jesus mm-hmm. gives that, that wonderful parable. Uh, and he says to his disciples, listen, I speak in parables to you guys, to you, the things of the kingdom of God have been revealed, um, but to everyone else they're hidden so that uh, they won't understand. But he gives this amazing parable. Um, and it's a parable of a sower going out and scattering seed and it lands on the path and it lands on rocky ground and it lands amongst the thorns and the thistles and it lands on good ground. And amongst the path, it gets plucked up and amongst the rock, it gets scorched out and amongst the thorns and the thistles, it gets choked out. But on the good ground, it produces fruit. Uh, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Uh, I think in the book of Luke, he doesn't have that Markian uh, kind of uh, um, uh, 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 description. But when he's describing the the, the that that particular parable, um, as he interprets it for his disciples, he says, look, the, the path, you know, the devil came and stole the seed away before it even had the opportunity to produce uh, fruit on the rocks. Um, uh, you know, the, it was it was um, uh, scorched away, um, and, and this is just you know the the person who didn't have have a root, have a grounding uh, in the faith, and just couldn't stand the test of time. And amongst the thistles, well, in reality, um, amongst the thistles, persecution came and, and and choked out and and totally ripped out the heart uh, of that person who professed faith. But what does salvation actually look like? That's the point of the parable. What does it look like? It looks like fruit. Repentance bears fruit. Jesus later goes on to say in the same book as well as in the book of Matthew and and other gospel accounts that a tree is known by its fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. And guess what? Bad trees produce bad fruit. Um, if we look at the life of a person who at one stage in their life professed faith, but they bear no fruit, <laughs> no good fruit, no bad fruit. I mean, they, they bear bad fruit. They don't bear any good fruit. We have every reason to doubt their profession of faith. Um, yeah. Rari would in his, uh, and I can't remember if he actually makes a statement in either biblical doctrine or in his systematic uh, in his uh, larger work, uh, Rari would hold to um, uh, uh, once saved, always saved. In other words, if that profession was made, you are held fast. Um, whereas I think it would be better to say, if saved, always saved. If you were truly saved, if you were truly converted, if you put your faith yeah. and your trust in Jesus Christ, you will remain saved, and that salvation would look like it would look like something. And you know, if I had to. Give it a text, I would go to Ephesians chapter 2, which is a wonderful text about salvation. It starts off, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It goes on to say, but God saved you. Uh, and even your faith is a gift which comes from him. And it ends off as it, as it kind of like ramps up and describes the relationship between salvation and works. It ends off by saying that even your good works were prepared for you before the foundation of the world. God prepares good works for those who have been saved by faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. Amen. Tips. Um, your third book was uh, Knowing God by J.R. Packer, which is another Anglican. Wow, Anglicans are featuring on our show this morning. Um, uh, 
Packer, Canadian, Anglican, Evangelical, one of the truly greats in our generation. And by our generation, I mean he was alive. Well, we've been alive. Um, he has uh, gone on to glory in the last few years. Um, why does knowing God make your list, Tepo? I think, I think um, just just his focus on the importance of man <laughs> knowing God, and 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 basically what 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 just came to mind now was um, the importance of the study of God's word. So 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 he gets to a point where he talks about how wasteful and meaningless it is to live. Um, without the knowledge of God, without studying God's word, because basically you make nothing of of everything that you see around. <laughs> and 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 I like I like I like the the, the picture that he uses of um, placing someone in a place that he's never been and just leaving them there. And it's like even that, like for for me, for me, obviously, like he's very he's very good when it comes to imagery. <laughs> so for me, it was like if that were me, like how else would I be able to reason or to 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 understand the world around me without having a a a an understanding of who God is or just I mean just looking around, <laughs> like we, we we can't just wake up in the morning hear birds and say. Like there's so much order, there's just so much order, and there has to be a meaning behind it. <laughs> so, so I think I think for me, he he really hits um, the nail on the head when when he talks about how everything outside of God, if we were to live our lives outside of God, is basically a waste of our lives, and also that our souls will be eternally damned. Mm. You know, I mean, between the two of us, we've now listed six books and I listed three books that were different to yours. But I'm guessing that you could guess what my three books were because you've heard me talk about them many times in the past. You've listed um, Augustine's Confessions. You've listed yeah. Ryrie's Basic Theology. Uh, you've listed Knowing God by Packer. Um, I listed Value of Vision. Um, as my number one book, a book which taught my heart how to pray and um, prayers of the Puritans. It was compiled and written, uh, compiled by Arthur Bennett. Um, and it really is a masterful book. I actually want to read one of the prayers um, in the second half of the show uh, just to give an example of how the book is just so deep and excellent and can teach us how to pray. My second book that I listed was Pilgrim's Progress, which I guess in some ways relates to Augustine's writing style and that um, Confessions has got some allegory in it. Um, and Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's a story. It's a dream, so to speak. Um, the story of a man's um, life from the point of salvation, uh, hearing the gospel all the way through to his death. It is a masterful tale um, written by John Bunyan hundreds of years ago, um, the second most published book and translated book in the world next to the Bible. Um, yeah. Pilgrim's Progress is an all-time classic. And my third book last week, mm, I was Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's right. Um, I keep a. Uh, I've got a. I've got a permanent reading pile uh, on my 
uh, left speaker over my shoulder behind me on that I have I always have a systematic theology right now it's a big white one if you know your systematic theologies you know that currently I am reading through uh, MacArthur and Mayhew's systematic theology and enjoying that and right above that as I'm looking behind me um, is Fox's Book of Martyrs written by John Fox the account of um, of the persecuted church, um, martyr after martyr, and how they died. And I find that the book really bolsters me. Um, it talks to my heart. It makes me courageous. And uh, uh, it gives me, it, it really it does, it fosters a love for Jesus in my heart as I look at what others have given up for the sake uh, of the kingdom. Um, the kingdom. I, I, I really do enjoy uh, those three books. Uh, I spoke about those three books uh, this past weekend as I took a group of young adults uh, at Crystal Park Baptist Church through to Good Neighbors. Now, Good Neighbors is literally <laughs> on the other side of the city. It is a, I'm going to take a guess, 65 kilometer drive from Crystal Park Baptist Church where we met at nine o'clock to Good Neighbors. We arrived there, I think, at 10 o'clock. We had to wait for one or two uh, stradlers. Um, but we arrived there at about 10 o'clock um, and we went through um, the book room. Uh, their book room is divided up into sections. We started with uh, English Bible translations, moved on to Christian living. They've got sections on biblical counseling, on family living. They've got quite a large children's section. They've got sections on biographies, church history. They've got quite a large section on um, uh, pamphlets. Uh, and small uh, booklets. Uh, they've got a systematic theology section and a reference section. They've got sections on commentaries, New Testament and Old Testament. Uh, and we were met by Kathy, who manages the book room. And, uh, and uh, I took the guys around. And it's very interesting, Teppel. The books that you have noted were books that I noted as we went around the book room. Uh, I pulled out uh, Augustine's Confession and put it before the guys. I think there might have been a sale of an Augustine's Confession on the day. Uh, Knowing God by J.R. Packer, I actually didn't see a copy of that on the shelf. Um, but I did, under the uh, theology section, point to many of the theologies that we've spoken about. They were a Reformed English church. I don't think that they had a copy of Ryrie Systematic on their shelf. Um, in fact, I'm fairly certain that they didn't, but they did have Grudem and a couple of others. Um, they, I know on the day they sold copies of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, they sold copies, multiple copies of Value of Vision, um, and they sold uh, copies of um, Wayne Max, um, Strengthening Your Marriage or Preparation for Marriage was the number one seller of the day, but I was with young adults. Uh, and we <laughs> of other long-time hearers, even of this show, who heard about it last week, um, Friday, uh, we met them, uh, uh, the Lears, um, at the book room and spent some time engaging with them. It, it really was a good time. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I want to give the book room a star rating, a, a Penrith star rate, a table talk star rating. Here it comes. <laughs> five out of five for the coolest book room in the whole of Johannesburg. I loved it. I mean, they got a chandelier hanging from their ceiling. It is the the the, the book room is kind of. Have you been to Good Neighbours, Teppo? 
Yes, I have. And I, I met Brian Watts there <laughs> when I was there. Ah, uh, cool. Brian Watts is from, um, I was going to say Witchwood, but that's Parmesh. Brian Vista, Watts from Glen Vista Baptist Church. Good man. Um, uh, Brian Watts from Glen Vista Baptist Church. Ah, uh, it is, it's just amazing. They have thousands upon thousands of good books. In actual fact, <laughs> if you walk in, so you could name drop bad Christian authors that are really popular in our day and age. I'm not going to say them live on air, but if you're listening, you probably know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about bad Christian authors that are really popular in our day and age. If you had to list them in that book room and say, hey, I'm looking for a copy of, <laughs> I'm looking for a copy of, do you stock this author? Without exception, they would say no. They have a curated list of books uh, at the book room. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then um, Kathy herself, who is the um, who, who manages the book room, is so knowledgeable of the the books that are on their shelves. Um, I was looking for a particular book. I, I went with the intention of buying a book which Cole Joshua, uh, who is a pastor down in KwaZulu Natal. Um, Cole had uh, had recommended that I get a copy of Killing Calvinism. And so I went wanting to get that book and Kathy was able to find it for me. They had four copies in stock and uh, I was able to buy that. I actually read that on Saturday. It was, it was such a short read. It was, I don't know, maybe eight chapters and they were excellent. If you've come to Reformed Convictions within the last couple of years, and uh, your desire is to understand how to share your faith better and how to um, handle the doctrines of grace well, then I can certainly recommend Greg Dutch's book, Killing Calvinism. Uh, it certainly was an excellent read. Um, I enjoyed it. I actually read it on Monday, not on Saturday. Folk, uh, we've come up for 10 o'clock. It is the turn of the hour. We are about to find out if this works. <laughs> but I'm expecting that we're about to go on a song break. And when we come back, we are going to be answering some questions that have come in. I see questions from Penny uh, as well as from others. Uh, looking forward to engaging uh, with your questions. Let's see if we can go to a song break now. Well, folk, it is good to be with you for the second hour of Table Talk on Friday. Um, this morning I am joined by my partner in arms, Teppo Pitzel. Uh, we're both from Crystal Park Baptist Church and we are joining you from Benoni this morning. We are in studio in our local church. It is a pleasure to be on the interwebs. I know we are on Facebook and we are on um, various different open um, uh, DSTV and a number of other mechanisms. I actually don't know how you might be listening to us this morning, but let me say it is good to be with you. Um, I really enjoy Fridays. I enjoy engaging with uh, friends, some of which, some of whom I have met, uh, and some of whom I have not met. Uh, it's always fun to interact with you on a Friday. We're going to start to bring in some of the questions and answers that have been coming in over the last while. Uh, on Facebook and on Twitter and via WhatsApp and speak to those. And we're going to continue our conversation around some good books. 
Uh, actually, some of the questions obviously are around books, and so we will talk about uh, those as well. Um, this morning, we are also joined by our co-laborer in the ministry, making sure that the lights go on. Mpo is at the studio, um, making sure that things um, work and that the sound goes out. Uh, Mpo, I hope that you have the audience applause um, kind of jingle uh, when uh, long-time listeners are announced. The first question comes in from Penny. Penny is a long-time listener. Do we have an audience applause for her? <laughs> well done, Mpo. I'm proud of you, mate. Um, so Penny's question is actually a relatively uh, simple one. Um, she says, good morning. As I understand it, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you. And then she notes uh, at the end that he did not say that we would live in the mansions and she would love to know who will. Uh, that's the question. That's like a gentle question for a Friday. Thanks, Penny. <laughs> Sometimes the questions that we get are really heavy. Um, that one I can handle. Uh, thanks for holding on so long. Penny asked the question at like 9 o'clock, and it's already um, way past uh, 10. So uh, thanks for holding on with that question. Uh, the text that Penny is referring to um, is around the way to the Father. Um, and it can be found in John chapter 14. It is such a key text. I actually want to read it um, because it's beautiful. And it has spoken to my heart when I was in the midst of trial and calamity. And I have no doubt it will speak to yours as well. Um, Jesus is speaking and he says to his disciples, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Maybe just just so far and let me just give you a little bit of explaining that word believe in greek is pistos it is a repeated word over and over and over again in the book of john it's one of the key words in the book of john when john gets to the end of his book and he gives the reason why he wrote the book of john he says that these things are written that you might believe and in believing that you might have eternal life and believe in what well in the christ in jesus that he is the son of god and so jesus here in chapter 14 of this gospel and this is as we come to the end of his ministry we are entering now into into the last section we're heading very quickly now towards passion week he says don't let your hearts be troubled be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. I mean, to that, Thomas, who is kind of like such a character in the book of John. He's the guy at the end of the book of John who when he sees, well, just before he sees Jesus, like one week before he sees Jesus, says to the other disciples, unless I put my finger <laughs> into his side, unless I touch his hands, uh, I'm going to struggle with what you're telling me in terms of the first witnesses. 
And a week later, when he sees Jesus, and Jesus says to him, just those beautiful words, Thomas, you know, place your hand into my side. Touch me, feel me. It's it's I. It's Jesus. I'm alive. His response to Jesus Christ is what? My Lord and my God. Thomas is an amazing character. Yeah, in John chapter 14, he asks the question, Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? <laughs> Just constantly curious uh, and a little bit naughty. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you know me, you will also know my Father. What an amazing claim. Jesus says, if you know me, if you know Jesus Christ, the man standing before you, you know God, the Father in heaven. And from now on, do you know him? Uh, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, this gets picked up, this theme of seeing Jesus, having seen God, gets picked up by Paul uh, in both Colossians, as well as, and I'm not saying that Paul wrote Hebrews, but it's picked up in the book of Hebrews as well. Whoever wrote Hebrews, let's say Barnabas. Um, it's picked up in the book of Hebrews as well, um, as this, this idea that if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father, because the Son is the exact representation of the father he is the, the 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 radiance of the father to man well that's the context okay john chapter 14 and john chapter 14 as penny says um he says well look um i am i'm going ahead of you uh, in my father's house uh, on many mansions and i go and prepare a place for you and then her question is well he didn't actually say that we would stay in the mansions so who will <laughs> so penny I think it's a little bit like this. Um, uh, I, at home, I have many rooms, and I'm going ahead, and I'm going to make supper <laughs> um, for you, and you're invited. Um, is that the best example? Is that the best expression? Um, he, he's saying two things that are true. One is that God's house, heaven, description, and this may very well be metaphorical. It may very well be physical. It's not entirely, completely clear in the text before us. Um, there are many mansions and that he goes ahead and prepares a place for you. Um, I, I don't think that it's his intention to say, hey, listen, yeah, heaven's filled with many rooms, but you're not going to be staying there. I think his intention is to convey to his disciples um, a sense of security, a sense of certainty, a sense that because they know him, they know God. God has a house. It has many rooms. Um, and they know the way to get to him. He's going there. Um, where to follow. Uh, I don't think he's implying that, hey, listen, yeah, there's many mansions in the sky, um, but you're not going to get to stay in them. I think his intention is to convey that and in its fullness of meaning. As we read that whole passage, it, it's supposed to give us certainty that Jesus has gone before us and that we will be meeting him and that because um, we know Jesus, we know God. Um, uh, the Father's house uh, is open to us. The door is open. Uh, we will be spending our time, our, our eternity with him because we are in Christ. 
Very important in this text, though, is, well, who gets to go and live in these mansions? And the answer is those who are in Christ and them alone. That's why John wrote this book, right? That we might believe, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have eternal life in his name, his name being kind of like the sum total of his authority, of his person, of what he has done. Friends, those who ultimately are gathered up together and who spend an eternity worshipping the Father and the Son in heaven above will be those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and no others. Jesus makes an absolutely exclusive claim in this text. He says, I am, and this is one of the great I am statements in the book of John. There's uh, seven of them. Um, I am the gate. I am the bread. I am the life, and yeah, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is, is making a very clear claim to deity in this text. Um, he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you know me, you've know God. And I am the way. I am the truth, the source of all truth. The Bible reveals that God is the source of all truth. Jesus claims to be the source of all truth. The Bible reveals God as being the source of all life. Jesus says, I am the source of all life. <laughs> if you're to have life, if you're to have it abundantly in this world and eternally in the world to come, you are to have it in and through me. No one will come to the Father. No one will come to his Father. No one will be able to claim God as our Father unless we come through the person of Jesus Christ. It really is a most remarkable text. And it goes on, uh, you know, from verses 8 through to verses 11, we then have an engagement with another disciple, Philip, uh, who says, well, then show us the Father. And Jesus says, well, how long have you been with me? Don't you know yet who I am? Well, it took a while for the penny to drop for the disciples. Um, but we have the fullness of God's word before us. We see in it. Um, the true revelation of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. Um, and this text is a great pointer to who he is, uh, his deity, but also to how we might be bound to him. Um, exclusive claim to deity and exclusive claim to the only way to be reconciled to God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Great question, Penny. Anything to add, Tepo? No. I think <laughs> that's pretty short and sweet, brother. Pretty short and sweet. Well, <laughs> let's go on. Let's go into another question which we have received. Um, the next question comes in from Teresa. Uh, Teresa, long time listener, do we have an applause? Um, Mpo. <laughs> okay, well, greetings all, Teresa says. Hope you are all well. Awesome topic. I look forward to hearing about last week's feedback. Um, has anyone read A.W. Tozer's Knowing God? Did A.W. Tozer write Knowing God, Teppo? Knowing God? I think, so. let me see. I thought uh, 
Okay, well, he might very well have. Uh, I'm going to take Teresa's uh, word for it. Uh, would like to know how Toza and Packer tackled uh, that one. Um, Toza, obviously, been um, from the same kind of time period uh, as Packer, slightly different theological dispositions. Both were free grace, interestingly enough. Um, but Toza, probably being the best of the Arminians, and Packer being the best of the Calvinists. Uh, at the time. Toza being called the mystic um, in terms of his writing style, Packer being known as clearly evangelical and heralding um, a reformed Anglican uh, stance and particularly uh, coming against the rise of liberalism. Toza being a darling of the evangelical scene just in terms of his writings, I particularly remember a couple of titles um, born after midnight. I wonder. Uh, yeah, um, Tip was busy looking up, uh, knowing God. Um, I beg your pardon, brother. I'm not finding it. Oh, knowing God is a classic. But I actually thought that knowing God. Uh, let me just write you. Knowing God. I'll tell you right now. Knowing God is a J.R. Packer book. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think it was a Tozer book. Um, yeah. Knowing God is a is a. Um, a J.R. Packer book, Knowing God being uh, actually his classic. Now, now uh, we were talking about books uh, earlier. Uh, you didn't list Knowing God. What did you list, um, uh, Tips? No, I did list. <laughs> you did list Knowing God. Yeah, okay. So, um, Tozer didn't write Knowing God. Sorry, uh, there's a bit of confusion on this side. Um, Tozer didn't write Knowing God, um, uh, uh, Teresa. Um, Tozer... Um, uh, Packer wrote Knowing God a and Knowing God was the, the book which I quoted quite extensively from when I was preaching from Psalm wasn't 33 um, a couple of weeks ago I, I preached Psalm 33 at a, at a funeral service um, I was preaching from Psalm 100 I think and uh, I'll have to go and take a squiz um, but I was quoting from Knowing God Tozer wrote a number of other books. One of, one of his key books was Born After Midnight, an absolutely excellent read. It reads so well. Um, and he's, he speaks with clarity. I mean, it, almost with a prophetic voice, both in his own time uh, as well as into our time. Um, I like to quote uh, Tozer myself uh, on Facebook and really appreciate many of his thoughts. Um, but like everyone, I guess he comes with a couple of caveats just in terms of uh, his theological dispositions. Um, but but, uh, but yes, a, a largely evangelical author, well worth reading, um, a blessing certainly in terms of uh, 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 bringing together my own thinking. Teresa asks a couple of questions. He, he asks about study Bibles and uh, what to look for in a good study Bible um, why it may be necessary uh, and then he also says he's asking for a friend <laughs> which nine times out of ten means he's asking for himself and he says he he recently came across a Matthew Henry study Bible now I find that kind of interesting a Matthew Henry study Bible I haven't seen one myself but but it kind of makes sense so let's just talk about Matthew Henry first I, I'm sure I've mentioned Matthew Henry before on the show many times Matthew Henry was a nonconformist Baptist pastor. Uh, I've, I've mentioned him most recently in connection with a book that he wrote on prayer and uh, methods for, pray, for prayer that I've been reading myself. It is an 
excellent composition of how to pray from scripture for a wide range of topics. Uh, we've compiled it into a reading list, particularly for those who are engaged in corporate prayer at Crystal Park Baptist Church. Um, but Matthew Henry is not known for his writings and prayer. He's most well known for a a commentary on the whole Bible, which he put together many hundreds of years ago. Um, and that commentary has an endearing and enduring <laughs> place in the hearts of of many, many pastors. Um, I, I still refer to Matthew Henry as I'm preparing to preach, not because he's the best commentator on text, because he actually isn't, um, but because his commentary often just has arrows which go straight to a man's heart. Uh, and from that perspective anyway, uh, I have just found over and over again, Matthew Henry's commentary has been a very, very um, uh, 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 useful commentary to go through. Um, so Teresa, I, I definitely am an advocate for Matthew Henry because he commentated so widely on all of the Bible. I'm guessing that somebody could take his commentaries and compile them into a study Bible uh, and maybe just pick out key parts of his commentaries and, and put them together into a kind of devotional study Bible. However, here's my caution. Um, whilst I think that Matthew Henry is excellent, when you get a study Bible, I'm actually hoping for a little bit more than what Matthew Henry, I think, could provide. I, I would rather go for one of the newer study Bibles where they are informed both by the latest understandings of the text, the actual Greek and Hebrew text, as well as latest discoveries in terms of archaeology. I'm going to want something that's a little bit more kind of cutting, uh, cutting edge. I, I've even seen kind of Sp Spurgeon uh, study Bibles that have been produced of late. And, and whilst I have such a high regard for my favorite Reformed Baptist preacher, Spurgeon, uh, I probably, if I was going to choose a study Bible, wouldn't choose that as my study Bible unless it has been very, very well edited and has kind of like the latest, greatest understandings, both from a textual perspective um, as well as um, understandings from other perspectives. And so uh, that would be my initial thoughts on uh, a Matthew Henry study Bible. I don't know if that's completely helpful because I haven't seen the study Bible myself. And so I might check it out and go like, wow, this is amazing. They've taken the heart of Matthew Henry and they've added it to the kind of theological profundity of a man like Sproul or something like that. Um, but I did come prepared to talk about study Bibles. Um, this, for instance, is a MacArthur study Bible. It is the English Standard Version. So that's the translation which they are using. Um, with notes, I mean nearly 25,000 study notes and 140 maps and charts and illustrations and a number of other bits and bobs which are added in. Um, this would be one of the, the newest study Bibles and I would kind of advocate for having one of those. The reason why I had it so near to hand is I wanted to talk about the, the one book I would take with me if I was stranded <laughs> on a desert island for two years. And so, Tepo, I'm going to give you the opportunity to think about this question as well, because it has come in. Um, what is the one book that you would take with you if you were stranded on a desert island for two years? And the question is why? And it nicely ties into Teresa's question. 
Um, and let me say, I would take with me a the thickest, newest, most awesome study Bible that I could find. So I would either take with me the Reform the Reformation Study Bible, which is the study notes of R.C. Sproul, or I would take with me the MacArthur Study Bible, or I would take with me the actually is a Charles Ryrie Study Bible. It's <laughs> a Schofield Study Bible. I probably wouldn't take that one though, if I had to be entirely honest. Um, with the Geneva Study Notes from like the 1600s. No, okay, wait, that would be 1800s if it was Schofield. Um, the Geneva Study Notes is a very, very old study Bible. But again, I'm gonna want something a little bit newer. I might take with me the ESV study Bible, uh, the English Standard Version study Bible. I might take with me the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I've also seen and I think has got some great academic research in it. But let me tell you why I would take a study Bible with me. I'd take a study Bible with me because I want the Bible. I mean, to be honest with you, no book is going to serve you better over a two-year period than the Bible. I, I would try and read the Bible every single day, a couple of chapters at least. Um, th there is no book which is going to speak to your heart. There is no book which is going to put God on display more than His Word. So you're going to want a Bible with you. Uh, you know, maybe if I was a little bit fancier, I would take a Greek text with me or a Hebrew text. But, but in actual fact, uh, I mean, I would probably be sitting and looking at the letters for two years trying to figure out what they mean. I, I'm going to want a good and faithful English translation with me. And so just in terms of English translations, let me tell you what I would take with me if I was on a desert island for two years. I would take one of these translations. I would either take a Christian Standard Bible because I do believe it is faithful to the text, easy to read, um, and yet has a, uh, it takes care to be as literal as possible for as much of the wording as possible. So I might just take a CSB so that I can read the Bible easily and understand it. But if I was gonna choose a study Bible, I in all likelihood would take a new American study Bible or it's kind of like a latest release, a legacy standard Bible, one of those two. And the reason why I would take a new American standard Bible is because they pay particular interest to the original languages. They are trying to be as literal as possible uh, and that would extend to the use of verb usage uh, in the Greek and uh, I, I really have a high regard for the studious nature of the New American Standard Bible. So for myself, if I was on a desert island for two years, I would take a New American Standard Bible and I would take the best commentary notes that I could find uh, that would be included at the bottom. I'd make sure that the study Bible has got a, um, a kind of a, a, a cross-references uh, in the margins, that it has uh, clear margin notes where it comes to textual concerns, uh, you know, it's like referencing if the Dead Sea Scrolls said something different in the Hebrew, uh, it's referencing uh, specific uh, minuscules or manuscript changes uh, in the Greek. Um, and then I'm gonna look for somebody who has got lots to say that is trustworthy in terms of the study notes. And so probably my preference would be a MacArthur uh, a study Bible in the New American Standard or Legacy Standard Bible. Um, if you were on a desert island for two years 
I'd be interested to hear <laughs> what you would take with you. Um, if you are listening in right now, um, you can drop a comment. Uh, Teppel, what yeah. book would you take with you if you were stranded on a desert island for two years? I'm not going to tell you what the climate is like. <laughs> um, I think I think I would print out <laughs> the whole of Precept Austin <laughs> and go. <laughs> I think I think I'd make a and and I gotta say what a brilliant choice. But now you're gonna have to explain to listeners what Precept yeah. Austin is and how they can find Precept Austin for themselves. Yeah. So so Precept Austin is actually a site that has combined um, commentaries by faithful men, like commentaries that you can trust. So there's actually commentaries from Genesis through to Revelation. So if you just type precept Austin, let me just see uh, it's preceptaustin.org. That's how you find it on Google. And you can get verse by verse of explanation or commentary. So that's basically what I'm saying. I would print out and bind into one book and go. I'm sure two years is a short time for <laughs> all of that. But yeah, I think I think that's that that would be my first choice. But if not, I would I would go for the, um, I think the ESV Study Bible. I think that's what I would go with uh, because I actually like the 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 bit of research in the notes that they that they talk about um, as to what that might have meant in the time and uh, what that actually is 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 the interpretation by most scholars. And also, yeah, they give um, many different, uh, what is this, interpretations of a particular verse. And so, yeah, it leaves you, it, it gives you a broad background in terms of what the, the verse actually means or what the verse might mean. <laughs> and so, yeah, in terms of studying the word, I think I think that that would be um, what I would take if mm. the Bible or precept Austin bound. Hey, I got, I got to say, that is a great choice. Uh, Precept Austin has been an incredible resource to me, even as a preacher, um, prepping uh, sermons. I, I found some of my favorite commentators by using Precept Austin. Uh, that includes William Barrack, uh, who is a Old Testament professor at Master Seminary. I didn't actually, I never read anything. I didn't know about him until I started using Precept Austin. And I was going through the book of Ecclesiastes and his commentary on Ecclesiastes was there. I really, really enjoyed engaging with him. Um, and a number of other uh, commentators, I'm thinking of like Paul Apple and a number of other people um, I've found exposure to by using Precept Austin. I love the way that they um, that they rank the commentaries that are available in the public domain, um, and they they share a very careful. Um, uh, 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 kind of, uh, uh, they, they share the commentaries, thousands of commentaries, literally thousands of commentaries, thousands of links on every single chapter of the Bible. Um, and yet the links are curated and carefully, uh, there's a careful order in terms of the way that they are presented to the, the reader. 
Um, and I've always enjoyed that about Precept Austin. Yeah, good good option. I think you're I think you're being a little bit sneaky because it is an online uh, it is an online <laughs> website uh, and it is massive. I mean, if you had to print out everything on Precept Austin, I'm guessing that not even all the paper in Benoni could print out uh, the content that is available on that website. But but yeah, well, well done for getting a great resource into the hands of people that are listening in. Tipple, uh, a question has come in uh, from Neil. Neil, I, I do want to say thank you so much for the voice note. Uh, apparently, the audio quality uh, was a bit poor. So if we don't understand your your question correctly, uh, you're welcome to type it out uh, and send it in via, via um, I think it came in via WhatsApp. Um, but I am going to tell you what the producer back at home base in studio said it was uh, a voice note from Neil uh, the audio sounds bad to broadcast but he would like 2 Timothy 2 oh verse 20 explained 2 Timothy 2 verse 20 <laughs> so I had I had read it um, but I read verse 2 and I was good to go with an answer <laughs> but now it's verse 20 so I think we're gonna have to read this um, and figure it out in context um, really the the section in 2 Timothy is around uh, a worker um, a, a worker being a metaphor for somebody who has been enlisted into the service of the king being God being Jesus and uh, it starts off in verse 14 um, talking to Timothy and telling Timothy that he must remind them of these things and the big question would be well who's the them uh, in verse 2 which is the verse that I thought that you were talking about um, it was the people that he needs to trust that he needs to um, uh, that he needs to share uh, the, the the men that will he needs to teach that will then be teaching others also um, and so he begins in verse 14 by saying the following, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. It's useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. But be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. In other words, Timothy, you need to be fundamentally a teacher and you need to be a careful teacher of God's word. You need to be very careful as you present God's word uh, to the world, lest you be shamed, lest you present God in ways that he isn't or ought not to be presented. Um, avoid irre uh, irreverent and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Um, and so we can see here in the text that there's a contrast between a good teacher and a bad teacher which is being presented. Bad teaching being unwholesome, being ungood. I don't think that's a word. Um, but bad teaching really le leading to gangrenous, um, and this is a metaphor, uh, a kind of rotting flesh. Good teaching obviously leading to the opposite, to, to health uh, and to goodness. And the teaching will spread like gangrene. I, I now find myself in verse 17, halfway through. Hymenus and Philetus are among them. And they've departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. In other words, false teaching. And now very important to your question, which relates to verse 20, Neil, um, we have the introduction of a discussion of the gospel. Now he started off 
um, the, uh, in 2 Timothy, talking about the gospel, talking about being wholesome in terms of the gospel that we present and how we present it. Now he started to speak about the resurrection and the resurrection is central to the gospel, right? Um, the gospel, if I had to just put it into very, very brief propositional statements, being this, that God, that Jesus died for our sins as a substitute, that Jesus rose from the grave in victory over sin, in victory over death, in victory over the wicked one, in victory over evil, and that all men everywhere must repent. They must turn from their sins and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ that they might live. The gospel in just three very simple propositions is Christ died, Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now he's injected this discussion of the gospel into this conversation about wholesomeness, into this conversation about good and wholesome teaching. An approved worker needs to uh, rightly talk about the resurrection, that the resurrection um, uh, of Jesus Christ. But now this resurrection is a different resurrection in verse 18. This is talking about a resurrection which is still to come. Uh, some people have said that the resurrection has already happened. This isn't talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is talking about the resurrection of the saints. This is talking about those who will be gathered up. It's talking about the end of the age. In verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. Um, uh, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, we, we have two ideas. Uh, one is the gospel right? Um, the gospel being Christ died, Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. And this idea in verse 19 that the Lord knows those whom are his and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord um, uh, uh, turn away from wickedness. So we've got the gospel message in this conversation. Um, but now we've got this conversation about the resurrection and it's a future resurrection. It's the hope that we have in Christ that we will be raised from the dead and presented to him. Verse 20 says, now in a large house, there are those not, uh, they are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay. And some are for honorable use and some are for dishonorable. And so if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And so we, we have this picture, right, in verse 20 and verse 21. And it's a picture of those who are saved. It's a picture of those who have called upon the name of the Lord. It's a, it's a picture of those who have turned away from wickedness. And they are described in verse 20 as either those who are of gold or silver vessels, rather than they've been uh, compared to those who are wooden or clay. And the text says that there are some who are for honorable use, and that would be talking of these gold and silver vessels, uh, and some for dishonorable. Um, and then it goes on in verse 21, says, if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And I would take um, the picture which has been described 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20 uh, as a comparison between those who are saved and those who are not. Um, in terms of the question, it's talking about a large house. There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, and that some are for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if there's confusion as to whether or not uh, these vessels, both the honorable vessels and the dishonorable vessels, are, are maybe in in heaven I, i'm not a hundred percent sure where the question is coming from uh from what angle the question is coming from i only have the text uh that you were asking the question from in front of me um anything to add in terms of observations just of the text uh, uh Tepo? yeah i think i think this also ties into uh what is this uh what Werner asked i don't know if you saw his question on facebook no <laughs> so so he he asked um what is what is the reformed position yeah. of double predestination right ah. so i think that that would be that would be the other interpretation of that verse so basically um i think it's 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 more of a question of are certain people um created to be damned and are certain people created to be saved so I think maybe that's what the question is alluding to. Um, so obviously the the one side being the safe side and the others the ones that are not saved. So yeah, I think I think from from the question that might be what um, that's alluding to. So what are the options, just in terms of as we look at this uh, text? Uh, what are the options that are on the table? Well, the one option is that. Uh, the table, uh, the 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 vessels are talking about saints, and some of the saints are um, are designated as being uh, vessels of gold and silver, and some of the saints are designated as being vessels of wood and clay. Some are for honourable use, and some are for dishonourable use, and we are being called uh, to set ourselves out for honourable use. Um, special instruments set apart, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Um, another possible interpretation of the text um, uh, is that this is a um, a comparison between between two sets of people: those who are saved and those who are not. And we are being called upon to be to put our faith and our trust in God that we might be set apart for honorable use as special instruments useful to the master prepared for every good work um I, i'm not a hundred percent sure where the uh, where the question is coming from or if the question is is just uh, could i make a observation in terms of uh, a, a statement uh, on these um, I guess the, the text goes on to say in verse 22, flee from useful passions uh, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart and reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness and perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And I guess 
it seems whether this the, 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 this line of thought really begins at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of chapter 2, and it runs the whole way through um, to verse 26, this idea that Timothy needs to be training people and needs to be calling false teachers away from false teaching. But then in kind of a, a more sharper focus from verse 14 through to verse 26, it seems that a comparison is being drawn between Timothy as being a wholesome teacher and false teachers that are even named in the text in verse 17, whose teaching is like gangrene. And then in even sharper focus, this idea of calling on the name of the Lord uh, is being spoken about in verse 19 and then again in verse 25. And then in even sharper focus, this call away from unrighteousness is being spoken about in verse 22, and that matches the illustration in verse 20. And so if I had to sum this all up, what I think is going on in this text, um, and I haven't preached on 2 Timothy myself, but as I'm reading this text and, and observing it myself, it would seem that there are two groups of teachers the one group of teachers is teaching truth and Timothy is called to be part of the truth and wholesome group of teachers. Another group of teachers is clearly teaching error and this is gangrenous and false and unwholesome. And Paul is now giving an illustration between these two groups of teachers and one group is going to lead towards righteousness. The other group is going to lead toward unrighteousness. And Paul is saying, Timothy, for yourself, you, you need to move towards righteousness. You, you need to call, be one of those who are calling on the name of the Lord and calling others to call on the name of the Lord, that you might be set apart for God's work. And the group of teachers, which is unrighteous, well, well, these would be characterized not as gold and silver vessels that are, are given for good works, but characterized rather as wood and clay, vessels that are dishonorable and that are, that, that, that are not useful. Uh, Timothy, you need to avoid both these teachers, avoid their teaching, and avoid just needless conversations uh, that actually get nowhere. Uh, with these kinds of people. And, and these teachings are evidenced really in the followers as well. Uh, the followers of wholesome teaching um, call on the name of the Lord and therefore produce good works, <laughs> uh, which are in line with their confessions of faith, their repentance. Those teachers who are teaching something else, they're, they're teaching that the resurrection has happened, they're teaching that these things don't matter, they're teaching that there is no future hope possibly in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm deriving that out um, from the beginning of this, uh, this passage from verse 14 to verse 19. Well, they, the people that are following them because they have a a misunderstanding, both in terms of the gospel, who Jesus is, uh, that he died for sins, that he rose from the grave, that everyone must call upon the name of the Lord, that we now have a future hope of resurrection because of what Jesus has done. Uh, these teachers are, are, are basically calling on people who, who do not have this future hope and therefore they are not righteous. They are not producing works which are righteous. Um, and ultimately, 
um, uh, they are like vessels of wood and clay that are absolutely useless. Um, as I read the text, uh, that's what I'm getting from first read. Uh, Neil, if you've got a, a, a more, uh, you know, uh, you've got a, 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 caref- a more careful question that you want to pose, you are welcome to. Um, Van, in terms of your question regarding double predestination, uh, uh, when it comes to God's word, we want to teach what God teaches, <laughs> and we don't want to teach what God doesn't teach. Now. Some of the teachings in God's word are very, very clear and very and very specifically towards the question of double predestination. We, we're talking about the doctrine of election. Election is clear in God's word. It's clear right from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. God is a God who elects before the foundations of the world. And what does God elect to? Well, God very clearly elects, for instance, Israel. He chose Israel from all the nations of the world, not because they were good or because they chose him. (laughs) He chose them and they were a stiff-necked people (laughs) in many senses, the weakest of all people uh, amongst the nations. And yet God chose them because he desired his glories to be known through them. Uh, It was a gracious choice on God's part. He, He willfully chose to give his unmerited favor toward this people. It was an election. God elected the Messiah. He chose the Messiah. And God elects, even before the foundation of the world, men and women who will put their faith and trust in him. And his election is sure. It is yes and amen. Those whom he elects, he gives the gifts of faith. And he he. Uh, places his unmerited favor upon. Now we can see that in many key texts, but let me give you two chapters that you can go away and read uh, and see of God's election. And and the chapters that I would suggest that you can go and read would be um, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and then uh, and then uh, Ephesians chapter two. Those would be two great places to start. If you want to see more of God of the doctrine of election, go and take a look at the book of John. And as you read through the book of John, you will see over and over again imagery related to sheep and hearing God's voice. And you can go and take a look at John chapter six, uh, and you can see in detail uh, these discussions in terms of double predestination. The question would then be, if God elects those who are saved, does God also elect those who are damned? And the particular text that folk would go to uh, regarding that would probably be uh, in the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 9 in particular, where it talks about um, Esau, and it talks um, about Isaac, and it talks about God's election, and it talks about vessels, um, and uh, and that is often a text that people go to. Let me say, on the one hand, uh, this positive election of God uh, in terms of those who are saved is very clear in Scripture. On the other hand, double predestination is not as sure and is certainly contested amongst many Christians, even those uh, who would uh, kind of call themselves Calvinists or hold to the doctrines of grace. Uh, let, let me also furthermore say that um, 
salvation as we understand it in terms of, and I realize we're coming to the end of our conversation, we might have to carry this over to next week. Um, but, but let me say, when it comes to the doctrines of election, all men everywhere are heading toward a certain end, death and hell and they are on that highway to hell without any election being necessary <laughs> we are condemned because we have separated ourselves from the will and way of god intentionally by our actions by our speech by our conduct by our heart's desire we are corrupt in every facet of our beings. We might talk about the doctrine of depravity, total depravity, that we have been affected because of the fall of Adam into sin. We have been affected in every single facet of our being, and we are on collectively a highway to hell. No election is necessary for that to be certain. However, even as we run helter-skelter toward our logical end, God happens. Even before the foundation of the, world, of the world, God elected those whom he would lavish his unmerited favor on in the person of Jesus Christ, whom he would extend his grace to, giving us that which we don't deserve, and whom he would give his mercy to, withholding that which we do deserve. Um, whom he would give his spirit to and the gifts of grace and the gifts of repentance. Um, election is a sure thing in God's word and we see it clearly um, in the pages of scripture. And indeed, we say thank you, Lord Jesus, and hallelujah uh, that he has made the salvation both available <laughs> to us and certain in the person of Jesus Christ. When we come back next week, we will talk about the other side of election. If Jesus, if God elected those who would be in Christ, did he also elect those who would be reprobates, those who would continue to run helter-skelter towards the jaws of hell and even through its gates? We'll pick up the conversation as we come back uh, next week at that point. Even as we are busy wrapping up uh, the conversation this week, um, our prayers do go out uh, to the elders and to the deacons who are holding the line at churches all around South Africa and indeed around the world um, during these most turbulent and difficult times. Uh, we do trust that you as listeners are praying for churches and for your local elders who are taking watch over your soul as we go out we also and remember missionaries who are serving the church on foreign fields as well as police and firefighters and nurses and medical staff all around our country and correctional service officers you've been listening to table talk with uh, me your host mark along with tepo uh, we are going to go to news now and so until next week, I do trust that you walk wisely, that you live holy, and that you testify zealously to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.